America is deeply reactionary at the moment. Same thing can be said for the church. I think we have worked very hard to try to harmonize the Christian gospel in the American dream. We make a sort of Faustian bargain, a Machiavellian kind of end justifies the means. You're part of our tribe, and if you're part of our tribe, we'll defend you no matter what. And if you're outside of our, our tribe, then you're the enemy. They recast Jesus himself as this ultimate fighting champion. Jesus will not be a mascot for the elephants or the donkeys. Jesus is the lamb, and he's going to reign and rule. Every time the early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, they were saying, Caesar is not. Your baptism has made you an exile. You don't belong to this anymore. Political power drives everything. If you cannot criticize your political party, that's your civil religion. You will be respected. You will be in power. It was everything that they ever wanted to hear. The way of the lamb is always love. The way of the lamb is always peace. The way of the lamb is always grace. They say they're rejecting Christianity, but they're actually rejecting a version of American nationalism. I think one of the most important things for American Christians to perceive is that America is not a kind of biblical Israel, but a kind of biblical Babylon. Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. And if you'd like to let us know, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us this morning. This is week two of our new Lent series, Postcards from Babylon. It's based on this book of the same title, Postcards from Babylon, The Church in American Exile by Brian Zond. And during Lent, uh, we prepare ourselves for Easter to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus all over again. And I can't think of a more relevant way to prepare ourselves for Easter, to prepare ourselves to follow Jesus Christ, than discussing this book together. So every week, the sermon is based on two chapters of the book. We started last week covering chapters one and two. Guess what chapters we're covering this week? Uh, chapters three and four. And then if you're reading along with us, just read chapters three and four. And then this coming Wednesday, you can be a part of the new online connect group discussing this book. That group is meeting for six weeks. Uh, on Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, 8 p.m. Eastern. You can get the link to join that group at wellchurch.org, wellchurch.org. They just started last week, so you, there's still time. You could order your book and have it in by Wednesday and read chapters 3 and 4 and uh, just get more information about how to join that group at wellchurch.org. The leaders of that online connect group are Travis and Kristen Loverin. And today you're going to hear from Travis as he gives the message on chapters three and four. And actually this series was inspired by a conversation with Travis. I asked him for a couple of resources he might recommend for our Lent series. And, and this is one of them that he recommended. And so we talked about this series and, and uh, I'm excited to hear from him today. Uh, Travis has a heart for growing as a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and he and Kristen together are an inspiration to people here in our community 
throughout the COVID shutdown, they led an online connect group almost the entire time. And, and uh, so they've restarted that new online connect group now to discuss this book. And uh, last week they had 16 participants in the group from four different states. I'm just super excited for what's going on there and super proud of them for leading. And so today, as you watch Travis share from chapters three and four, you're hearing from somebody who has a heart for God and who wants to grow and be a follower of Jesus Christ in the 21st century in America in a time in which that is very difficult. And many of us are asking questions about the environment that we live in, the way that, that Christianity is used for political reasons in this country. And what does it mean to really follow Jesus Christ, the real Jesus, in 21st century America? So we're going to watch Travis give the sermon today, and then I'll come back afterwards and, uh, and close the service. So now let's watch Travis Loverin uh, covering Postcards from Babylon, chapters 3 and 4. All right. Thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to chatting about chapters 3 and 4 of Postcards from Babylon. So... For those of you who may not know me, uh, my name is Travis Loverin, and I help lead the Online Connect group. Uh, and so we've been through a lot of fun books together, and uh, you're more than welcome to join. So we can dive a little bit deeper into the conversation if you want to. So as far as today's topic, um, as a whole, this book has really had a profound impact on me and helped me put words to a lot of what I was seeing and feeling and um, helped me personally challenge my faith and what it means to follow Christ in this day and age, especially with everything going on in, in politics and around the world. Um, you see news headlines about Christian nationalism and uh, of course what's what happened on January 6th and there's so many things going on that I want to live in an informed way of what it means to truly be a Christian um, in this day and age. So this book has challenged me and definitely uh, enjoy the opportunity here to walk through chapters three and four. So in America, I feel very blessed and fortunate to live here. So first and foremost, I, I feel grateful um, to, to be here, to have the freedoms that I do. But I always want to come back to my identity as a Christ follower. That has to be first and foremost in my life and that informs how I live as an American. We have to remember that Jesus wasn't an American. I, I know it sounds funny, but he wasn't an American. He wasn't born into wealth or power or status. He was born in humble beginnings. He was a Jewish brown-skinned carpenter who taught the way of love. And he wasn't a... Uh, a gun-wielding, you know, white American capitalist trying to siege power. <laughs> it uh, was, looked very, very different. And on that topic, feel free in the discussion. Uh, if you want to chat in what your thoughts are on how current American Christianity often looks very different than who Jesus actually was and what he represented. So feel free if you want to type that in, differences of classic Jesus versus what we've made him out to be in, uh, in just American culture in this day and age. So I will say that it's not about right or left, elephants or donkeys, 
it's about following the way of the Lamb, uh, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, as, as John says. So my allegiance isn't to a political party, uh, it's not to the right or left, but it really is to the way of Christ and the way of love, and what does that look like? So chapters three, um, chapter three here is called Tangled Up in Red, White, and Blue. And he talks about how there's been a mixing of religion and Americanism. And you can see this demonstrated in just the verbiage. A lot of times church ministries and, and newsletters and pastors will give all sorts of, you know, rhetoric and, and around God bless our troops and, um, you know, sing songs, God bless America, you're a grand old flag, star spangled banner, and, and all these American traditions and cultures. And it, you know, not that those things are bad or wrong, but it's very much shows the merging and the mixing of, of really religion and, and Americanism and how intertwined they've become. Brian Zond puts it like this. So the church in every Western power after Constantine has at some point succumbed to the siren seduction of the empire and has conflated Christianity with nationalism into a single syncretic religion. Rome, Byzantium, Russia, Spain, France, England, and Germany have all done it. So looking back 17 centuries ago, the church was tangled up in Roman imperial purple. In the 1930s, it was in Germany, and the German evangelical church was very much caught up in the Nazi red and black. And when we look at the history, many Christians and even great theologians didn't question their blind allegiance to government, and they would quote Romans 13 as justification for their, their blind allegiance. And, um, and really, they didn't question it until it was too late. And that's a, a good warning as well. The Anglican Church, another example, spent a long time tangled up with Union Jack and, and British imperialism. And today America, the, the American Evangelical Church that is, is really caught up in red, white, and blue. So Brian Zond says, a church in bed with empire cannot credibly call the empire to repent or change the way they're thinking. So just as an example, and I'm curious if any of you have seen this, but when churches will fly a flag um, at, at church, and typically speaking, if there's a Christian flag and an American flag, the American one is the one on top. And if you were to theoretically switch places and uh, put the Christian flag on top, symbolizing that Christ should come first, uh, a lot of people would probably be deeply offended and I think that is very telling of how intertwined it's become and how Americanism has shaped and our politics have shaped our religion um, really more than the other way around. And how it's a lot of times America first and your identity as, as a Christ follower is kind of tacked on or maybe it's just nominal Christian, just a, a label, but not really following the way of Christ. So many churches have their partisan politics deeply intertwined with religion. And in many cases, their, their politics become the lens through which they read the Bible. And in a sense, Christ or Jesus just becomes a mascot to them, 
to endorse their politics of power and privilege. So in the book, in chapter three here, he does talk quite a bit about war and violence and how the, the way of the world is very different than the way of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And last week, uh, Pastor Ryan talked about how Christianity was countercultural um, and very different. It stood out um, amidst the Roman Empire as something very other. And one way that it's other and that it's incompatible with the way of the world is just the use of force and violence to get your way. So if you have the stronger, throughout history, if you have the stronger force, the stronger military, you can shape history according to your will. And those who dominate win, and the victors usually justify their violence. And they tell the story, and they write history according to their perspective. And often the, the you know, victims and the voiceless get trampled. So the way of violence leads to more violence, and the nature of it is that it escalates. And this is why in the time of Moses, it was actually very uh, powerful and a huge step forward for justice to say an eye and an eye and a tooth for a tooth, because that stops the escalation of where, you know, you get me this much, I'm gonna get you even more. And, and um, you know, you steal a cow, I'm gonna steal, you know, two of your cows, whatever it was. And, um, and so it was meant to limit that escalation of violence. And then Jesus comes along and takes it even further and says, you've heard it said, an eye and an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, um, don't resist an evil person. You know, go the extra mile, give them your tunic, uh, love your enemies, for then you're acting in line with the nature of God who loves all of his kids and hopes for each of them to be healed and restored. It's a bit of a paraphrase, but that's really the heart of what he's saying. And if we truly believe that God's, you know, all of us are God's kids, made in his image and extremely valued, then we should want each person to be treated as such, regardless of if they look different, behave different, believe different. We shouldn't be feeding the spirit of fear and division that we see so often in the media or um, you know, social media or real media, uh, normal media. <laughs> Uh, there's so much othering and dehumanization of the other, you know, those not like us. And we see the way of Christ is different. So violence and force is not the answer. It's, it's, it doesn't work. You might get something like the Pax Romana, which is the, you know, the peace of Rome is what it means. But it was a peace that was artificial. And it was a peace that only existed because those who disagreed with Caesar or Rome were targeted, silenced, and sometimes killed. And that was uh, a very artificial peace. <laughs> it's a peace as long as you faithfully serve Caesar without question and serve him as Lord. And he was known as Lord and Savior. That was what the terminology was back then. Caesar was called Son of God. Uh, you know, he's called Lord, he was called Savior. And so when the early Christians started talking about Jesus as Lord and Savior, it was extremely political and it was very much, a, in a sense, a slap in the face to Caesar and say that to say Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not. And that's what got so many early Christians killed by the state, to be honest. 
So in the days of Jesus, the Jewish people, uh, just for some context, they, they've been conquered again and again by superpowers, and the latest one being Rome. So many Jews were expecting their Messiah to be a David-like figure who would overthrow Rome, to be honest. That, that's what they wanted. They wanted to take their religious freedoms back. And, um, and they were hoping that someone would overthrow the empire of Rome. Um, there was even a group called Zealots who, by force, acted out these political and religious views, this merging of power and religion. And they wanted to take their country back for God. And thinking of even those words, <laughs> does it sound familiar? And does it sound relevant to maybe some rhetoric we've heard recently? Uh, I think it's amazing to see and, and to hear um, the, throughout history and how it applies today. So today I'd say a lot of American evangelicalism finds themselves in a similar mindset of wanting their Messiah figure to be someone of power and force who will, who will fight for them, right? Who will, who will conquer. And, and um, that's what they were looking for back then. And that's what a lot of people want now. They want someone to fight for them. One big difference, though, is that the Jews uh, of that time were a very oppressed people. And white evangelical Americans today are uh, overall very well off and very privileged and already have a lot of, um, uh, yeah, are, are doing very well as, as it is. And they uh, just simply want more political power and privilege. So Jesus showed us another way. Rather than escalate violence with violence, he said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. It's, essentially, it's a call to love the other. In Jerusalem and with the zealots and everything, they didn't do that. And it culminated in the destruction of, Rome, of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And, you know, a lot of the warnings that Jesus gave came to pass. But Jesus showed us that it's not about getting back at the other person. It is that high road that, that Pastor Ryan talked about last time, loving your enemies. And Jesus never said, love your enemies, except the Romans, who, you know, we're, we're going to develop a plan to conquer them. No, it was love your enemies, period. And it's illogical. It doesn't make sense to say, love your enemies, and then, you know, turn around and shoot them in the face or, or stab them or something that uh, I know that's maybe graphic and uh, a little alarming, but it's to show the incompatibility of you can't love someone and then, and then turn around and do something horrific to them. And the subversive nature of loving your enemies is that they're no longer your enemy. You see them as human and valuable. And that, that's a powerful, powerful uh, tool, essentially, in helping to influence. So in Mark 10, 42, Jesus talks about the politics of power. You know that among the Gentiles, like the Romans, those whom they recognize as the rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It must not be so among you. Jesus also said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. John 18, 36 as well. Jesus said the first will be last, and the servant would be greatest of all. He turned the power structures upside down. He said to take up his, your cross and follow him, which 
you know, following the way of love, even to the point of dying, potentially. And he says it well, when we reach the sword of violent power, we let go of the cross of Christian discipleship. And to be a Christian implies an intentional attempt to imitate the one who would rather die than to kill his enemies. So the early church was like a microcosm of what it meant to follow the way of Christ or the way of love. And it was in stark contrast to what the Roman Empire was doing. So for Rome, they, they killed their enemies. The church loved even those who persecuted them. You know, Rome oppressed the poor. In the early church, in the book of Acts, it talks about how they shared everything with each other and, and gave to those who needed, and there was no one poor among them. Rome took up the sword, Christians took up the cross in love. It was a very stark contrast. And a bit of early church history, just showing a lot of the early point of Christianity merging with power or government, is back in, uh, in Constantine days. So pre-Constantine, early church, they disagreed about a lot of things, but war and violence was never one of them. They all understood that it was against the nature of Christ uh, to, to kill. But a few centuries go in, uh, you know, go by, and the Constantine was the Roman emperor of the time, and he had a superstitious dream. A lot of times in that day and age, they would, you know, fight under a certain symbol. And if you won, then that symbol was, you know, your, your in a sense, your lucky, your lucky item. <laughs> um, so he has this dream, and he wants to fight under the symbol of a cross, and he wins. And so since then, he adopts Christianity as essentially like the, the religion of the empire, although it was a very pagan form of it and really looked nothing like the way of Christ or loving your enemies. And that was the beginning of the merging of power with Christianity. And it, it turned into something very uh, bad, to say the least. <laughs> um, so that's where you start to get Things like the Crusades and, and, you know, a convert or die type of mentality, which was horrific and completely against the way of Christ. So I like what um, a quote from Keith Giles, another author, says that it's not about political power. If Jesus viewed the desire to acquire political power to be a temptation of the devil in the desert, then why do so many American Christians fight to acquire as much political power as they can? Jesus is about transforming the heart, not about using external force to dominate people into submission and compliance. So you may ask, what about patriotism? Can Christians be patriotic? Well, yes and no. It depends on what you mean. So I like that uh, Brian Zond says, if by patriotism, we mean a benign sense of pride of place that encourages civic duty and responsible citizenship, then patriotism poses no conflict with Christian identity. But if by patriotism, we mean religious devotion to nationalism at the end of being, uh, at the expense of well-being of other nations, if we mean a willingness to kill other Christians or non-Christians in the name of national allegiance, if we mean an uncritical support of political policies without regard to their justice, then patriotism is a repudiation of the Christian baptismal identity. So Christians can and should be productive and peaceful citizens, right? We, we should pray for political leaders, pay taxes, vote, 
um, help contribute to the common good. We should speak out and, and work for justice and, and for healing. Um, as, as Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. It's okay to love where you live, right? If you love it, you'll take more of an effort to take care of it and stand up for what's right. And I feel very fortunate to live here. It's my home. I think America has done a lot of things well. And there's much to be commended and to take pride in um, and to be praised. But we also must be willing to acknowledge where it doesn't look like Christ so that we can work towards a better future um, and help make the prayer of Christ a reality of let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I wanted to read a, a couple paragraphs from the book that I think he phrases it very well. So, this is on page 43 here. So this is a letter that uh, Brian Zond is writing to America on, uh, on July 4th, the birthday. So, so now that we're this far into our difficult conversation, I feel like I have something, some uh, other things to say. It's true that I love your energy, creativity, and entrepreneurial spirit. I love your amazing contributions to science and art. I love you because you're my home. But there are things I don't love about you. So here we go. I know you hate to be reminded of what you call the past, but the truth is that it's not past and you need to be reminded of it, whether you like it or not. I'm talking about your twin original sins, the brutal enslavement of Africans for the sake of the economy and the ethnic cleansing of this land's indigenous inhabitants. You seem willing to acknowledge the sin of slavery, though you still have a long, long way to go in righting the entrenched wrongs of racism. But you appear incapable of acknowledging your other great sin, the sin of genocidal ethnic cleansing. You want to pretend it didn't happen and get mad when I bring it up. But you're going to have to face it. I don't know exactly how you can atone for this sin, but I do know that you have to face the ugly fact that you built your nation on stolen land atop buried bodies. In building your shining city on a hill, you became Cain. You killed your brother. You can receive the mercy of God as Cain did, but you have to be honest about what you did to Abel, the Aboriginal people who first populated this land. America, you're my home, but my home is haunted by native ghosts. So please, try to be more humble. You don't have to be great again. It's enough to be good. You don't have to be obsessed with being number one. It's enough to be a moral citizen among the community of nations. You don't have to try to be king of the world. Jesus already is. In your obsession with possessing the means to kill, your trillion-dollar war machine, 2,000 nukes, billion-dollar bombers, not to mention 270 million privately-owned guns, scares me. Your money says, in God we trust, but your actions say, in gun we trust. It reminds me of something ominous that Jesus said, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Please think about it. America, I'm one of your citizens, and I do love you. I'll seek the common good. I'll gladly pay my share to help provide for education, infrastructure, healthcare, emergency services, and everything else it takes to live in a society. I'd like for you to spend a lot less on bombs and killing machines, but I understand that's not up to me. <laughs> yes, America, I do love you. But not like I love my Lord, not like I love God. I cannot love you like that. I cannot pledge unconditional allegiance to you. What I can promise 
is to be a good citizen by attempting to love my neighbor as myself. This will have to be enough. And better yet, I can pray that you would become more peaceable and just, more humble and kind. America, you don't need to be great. May God bless you to be good. I thought that was well, well worded and uh, talks quite a bit about what it means to look like, uh, in my opinion, a Christian patriot in, in this society. So Christian nationalism. On January 6th, 2021, the ugliness of Christian nationalism was on full display. In the book, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, the authors define Christian nationalism as a collection of myths, traditions, symbols, narratives, and value systems that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. In that book, they go on to say that among Americans, excuse me, who see a fusion between their religious identities and their national identity, it tends to draw on a framework of conquering outsiders and taking violent hold of what's rightfully yours. A recent article by Politico, Elizabeth Newman, who was a formal top official of the Department of Homeland Security, um, says that Christian nationalism is a huge theme throughout evangelical Christendom. And she refers to the teachings that posit that America is God's chosen nation. Christians who subscribe to these teachings believe the United States has a covenant with God that if it's broken, the nation risks literal destruction, uh, like the siege of Jerusalem um, in the Hebrew Bible. And in the eyes of these believers, that covenant is threatened by cultural changes like taking prayer out of schools or uh, legalizing abortion or gay marriage. Newman says that Christian nationalists tend to see in cataclysmic terms, this is the moment and God's going to judge us, she says. And when you paint it in existential terms like that, uh, people feel justified to carry out acts of violence in the name of their faith. Another author and professor, Kristen Cobes de Miz, found that Christian nationalism, the belief that America is God's chosen nation and must be defended as such, serves as a powerful predictor of intolerance towards immigrants, racial minorities, and non-Christians. Zond says, if the church is to be an ambassador of good news and become an agent of healing in the world, we have to become serious about being something other than the high priest of religious nationalism. Look, it's good to be a Christian inside of a nation, but to think that a nation itself can be baptized or can be a Christian, it doesn't make sense. America itself pioneered the experiment of breaking from that and pioneering secular governance. Whenever you mix the two, the, the joining of religion or spirit with government or power, it really doesn't work well for either one. It's, it's dangerous, honestly, to both. Billy Graham said, I don't want to see religious bigotry in any form. It would disturb me if there was a wedding between the religious fundamentalists and the political right. The hard right has no interest in religion except to manipulate it. And I know you've heard that quote before, but I think it's very applicable and works very, very well. So today, religious nationalism is on the rise. We see it, and it's something that we need to be mindful of um, and remind ourselves that we are citizens not of this world, 
we are ambassadors on earth. So one reason for the unhealthy Christian nationalism that we're seeing is a wrong interpretation of the Bible. So we know that history is written by the winners most of the time, but it's not this case with the Bible. So it's written with a bottom-up perspective from those who have suffered, suffered slavery in Egypt, um, those who were conquered and deported to Babylon, and those living under Roman occupation. It's largely written from the perspective of the underclass and the oppressed, and a lot of it is a critique of empire. So to read the Bible for all it's worth is to remember this vantage point. I have to remember that I'm reading it from a different context. I'm reading thousands of years later. Um, I'm reading from a different culture. I'm reading from privilege as an American. I was born into a country that is economically and militarily on top. We're, you know, I'm a citizen of a superpower that spends more on military than the next 10 countries combined. We have thousands of nukes, enough to obliterate millions or billions of people, uh, do horrible damage to the planet. So when I read the Bible from the perspective of the oppressed, <laughs> I often default to reading it like it's talking to me. However, I, I have to realize that in this story, I'm a lot closer to being an Egyptian, right? A, a comfortable Babylonian or a privileged Roman than I am an Israelite. But what happens when you have those on top or those, yeah, those on top of society reading the Bible as if they're an Israelite? You start to get the Bible endorsing dominance um, as the will of God. You, examples would be the Roman church after Constantine. You get Christendom on the Crusades. You get colonizers seeing America as the promised land um, and the inhabitants uh, as the Canaanites that need to be conquered. You get European colonialism, uh, you get Jim Crow, you get the American prosperity gospel, um, or you get Christians like on January 6th who stormed the Capitol trying to take this country back for God. The powerful using the Bible to justify their domination dishonors the Bible and Christ and misses the central perspective of the Bible in that it's from the hurting and the oppressed, not to justify the oppression. So when Jesus preached that the first will be last and the last will be first, that was really good news for those on the bottom. But I'm sure those on the top were, it made them uneasy, it made them scared, it made them nervous. And, you know, when we look at the U.S., of course, there's a huge wealth gap for one. Um, that's uh, nothing new. But a Forbes article said that the top 1% of households in the U.S., holds 15 times more wealth than the bottom 50% combined. Um, basically, the bottom 50% of the U.S. share about 1.9% of the total wealth. However, we shouldn't just, you know, look at those up at the top. I think it's uh, sometimes easy to say, oh, those, those guys up there, they, they make all the money and, um, and I'm the one at the bottom. But when we look at the global scale, um, I've been challenged personally to see that when we look at the world, an, uh, an income of around 10,000 a year puts you 
that's about the median income, to be honest, 10,000 a year. And a net worth of $4,000 total in your name puts you in the richest half of the world. A net worth of about 93,000 puts you in the top 90% uh, wealthiest in the world. And a net worth of about 900,000 puts you in the top 1% of the world. So if you live in America, you are most likely wealthy by world standards. So as a comfortable white male who, uh, you know, I have to humbly acknowledge that I am one of the ones on top. I, I have a significant amount of privilege. And does that mean I throw it all away and try to become like one on the bottom? Not necessarily. Um, I think it means learning what it looks like to listen with, with empathy and compassion. It, it means being more generous. It means, uh, again, having compassion and using my voice and my privilege to be able to speak up and take a stand for those who, who can't for themselves. Um, stand up for the dignity and value of each person. So when I'm reading the Bible, I need to see myself um, differently. Uh, for example, when I'm reading the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, I probably want to see myself as the rich man and take it as a warning of how am I treating the Lazaruses at my door. Um, or when I'm reading about, you know, the Egyptian empire built on the back of Hebrew slaves. And I, I want to see their liberation as God's declaration that Hebrew lives matter. Brian Zahn says it like this, if I can accept that the Bible is trying to lift up those who are unlike me, then perhaps I can read it more correctly. So chapter four talks about exiles on Main Street, and it, we've already talked quite a bit how Christians are countercultural and citizens of another kingdom, and We've talked about that a little bit in the context of today, as well as early church um, Christians with Rome. But long before that, the book of Daniel was written to try to help uh, the, um, the ancient Israelites as they, after they were you know, basically conquered and deported to Babylon, modern day Iraq um, in 597 BC. The book of Daniel is all about how do you live in a different society, in the society of empire, um, pagan empire, and hold on to your identity, hold on to who you are, and stand up for what's right. The first major story within the book of Daniel is about how they uh, denied the king's food. They basically said, rather than having what the king assigned us, we're not going to have that. We're going to have a kosher diet. And after 10 days, they were healthier than the other, other people. And it's not about uh, the fact that, you know, veggies are probably healthier than bacon. <laughs> it's about them holding on to their identity um, in the midst of a culture with different priorities. And in this day and age, I, I want to look at what, what is the media cooking or feeding me? What is, um, what is the world trying to feed me, so to speak? What is empire um, cooking up? <laughs> And Brian Zond says a lot of times it's consumerism and militarism. It's, it's that uh, the, the gods of Mammon and Mars, as he puts it. And a lot of times it's described or maybe hidden under different vocabulary, like the economy, national security. But when you look at it, they are two sacred cows of uh, that, you know, two sacred cows of empire. Economy trumps love of neighbor. 
and our sense of security justifies trillions of dollars to stay the biggest superpower the world has ever known. So just like Daniel pushed away his plate back then, and uh, I think today I want to push away the plates of, of filling myself with fear and, um, and a sense of lack. And I want to feed myself on faith, hope, love, and, and feed myself on things that will transform my own heart and life to be able to see the value of all people. And in turn, that shapes my actions. And, and I think that is what will have a lot more change in a healthy direction. The second story is when um, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that no one can interpret and Daniel shares the meaning of it. He says that essentially Babylon, their days are number and that it will see its demise. And what's interesting is the dreams of the prophets and the nightmares of kings are often one and the same. Just an interesting, interesting point that Zahn makes. So he also says that if our gospel is not heard as somewhat threatening to those on top of society, the, the top 1% who are most privileged by the current arrangement of things, we may want to question if our evangelistic news is really the gospel that Jesus proclaimed and the early church proclaimed. So back to the story of Daniel. In almost a sense of defiance against the prophecy, the king constructs this statue of gold, symbolizing that the golden age of Babylon will endure forever. It's a monument dedicated to the, the pomp and the glory of, of Babylon. And he required everyone to bow down to this statue as an act of forced patriotism. Daniel and his friends up to this moment have been able to serve, you know, pretty well and, and peacefully in, in the midst of this uh, different culture. But at this point, they have a, a decision to make because bowing down to this image, this statue, would mean going against the first two commandments uh, of Moses. So they, they stand up for what's right and what they believed in. And, and as such, they, they were thrown in the fiery furnace. I'm sure you've heard the Daniel and, and uh, you know, the, the four Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they were called. And they, you know, the people at the time, they exclaimed, there's a fourth man in the fire. It's like the Son of God, which kept them from being burnt. And it's a beautiful end to that story. We know that today and throughout history, that faithfulness to God and doing what's right doesn't always keep someone from martyrdom or from suffering. But I do believe that the fourth man is just like he was in the fire with them. It's in the fire with us too, co-suffering in the pain with us. So if we look a few centuries later, the book of Revelation was largely written as a critique of empire, warning Christians of the seduction of the great harlot of Rome. And jump forward even further to today. And, you know, we see that Christians really should be and need to be living as metaphorical exiles in the modern empire of America. America, I'm sure, is a much nicer Babylon but it's still a type of Babylon nonetheless. So Zahn says that King Jesus is not the best version of Caesar. King Jesus is really the anti-Caesar. This is what Jesus as Lord has always meant. This realization would help prevent the type of Christian nationalism that we see, which is so harmful and damaging. This would help us live and embody the otherness of the kingdom of God. 
as I said previously, I'm very thankful to live here. Um, however, I, I do want to live well and have the courage to see myself first and foremost as a citizen of the kingdom of God and, and live in such a way that I'm standing up for love, peace, and justice, especially for those who are pushed to the bottom of society and those who may, who may not have a voice for themselves. So let me close in prayer. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for churches like The Well where we can dive into topics like this that are challenging and learn what does it mean to, to be a Christ follower in this day and age. Thank you for helping us navigate the journey of untangling power with religion, nationalism, and Christianity. We know that you are hurt by those who claim to follow you and yet reflect nothing of your selfless and loving nature. Help us to see ourselves first as citizens of your kingdom, living the way of love, standing up for the value of all people. May we see that your way is not the way of violence, force, and domination, but of self-sacrifice, of grace, of compassion, and love that transforms hearts and lives. Teach us to read the Bible and understand it in the proper context from a bottom-up perspective. Teach us to be like Daniel in Babylon, who, you know, we can stand up for what's right even if it's tough. And let us see that your kingdom is not like the governments of this world. And show us how we can act and speak out for healing, justice, and compassion. Amen. Thank you all for the time and hopefully uh, we can uh, discuss a little bit further in uh, one of our upcoming Wednesday night groups. So, appreciate it.